This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and robust set of tools to develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Find ways to cut costs using the total cost of ownership calculator and compare against AWS's pricing. Visit linode.com saster to learn more. Up today, the five things that kill startups after their seed rounds and the secrets to avoiding them with Michael Seibel, CEO at Y Combinator. My goal with this talk is pretty simple. At YC, we see a lot of companies who raise money on demo day, as you can imagine, but still the vast majority of them die. And about 70% of them do not go on to find any form of product market fit. We've thought a lot about why this is and how we can help change it. And so one of the things we try to do at YC is hint at some of the reasons why even after raising that first million or two million, why companies die. And I wanted to go over in the next 50 minutes, some of the trends that we see are most common. So with that, let's move to the first one. I like to call this fake product market fit. It's extremely common for companies to say they have product market fit when they don't, and they have nothing close to it. And I would argue this is one of the most common forms of death, or uh, I'll say one of the most common symptoms of impending death for post-seed companies. So let's talk about the, the causes. Why do founders believe they have product market fit when they don't? Number one, they raise money from impressive people. They believe that um, impressive people, famous seed funds, famous angels, maybe a series A fund, they believe that these people are great at choosing companies. And if these people chose their company, that means that they must have product market fit. They must be onto something. They must be building the right solution for the problem they're trying to solve. Extremely common, extremely common. Number two, raising a series A pre-product market fit. Uh, nowadays, there are a significant number of companies that can raise five to $10 million when they don't actually have something yet that people love. And what's interesting is when that happens, more often than not, instead of continuing to focus on users and product, the founder will shift into focus on company building, um, which is typically a no-no. Number three, something we call magical thinking. So ignoring obvious facts in front of you that would give you the evidence you don't have product market fit or not even measuring them. So for example, not understanding your churn not understanding your payback period when you acquire a customer. If you don't know these numbers or you don't look at them, it's very easy to convince yourself you have product market fit when you don't. And then the, the last one is, is lack of strong technical talent. A lot of times people can convince themselves they have product market fit simply because they don't want to embrace the idea that they might need better engineering. They might need to improve their product. Improving their product is too hard, so it's easier to just believe your product's good. And, you know, before I go too much further, when we talk about product market fit, I think that unfortunately what you might think it means is different from what it actually means. I think what the common misconception is product market fit means 
conceptually, we've built the product that our users want. In reality, it's far more reflects numbers. And so what product market fit typically feels like is your product is breaking with profitable usage. So let's break this down. Your product is breaking. People are starting to come and use your product and word of mouth is spreading or your advertising channels are working and users are loving it. So they're retaining. And as a result, parts of your product that you didn't really build to scale are starting to not work anymore. Sometimes those are software components. Sometimes those are operational or human components. Um, but something is like starting to break because you didn't build it for scale. That's the first part. The second part is profitable usage. Those users are actually the type of users you want and they are the type of economics that you want. So you're not paying $1,000 for a user who's only gonna ever give you $100, or you don't have a three-year payback period or anything crazy like that. And so we gotta make sure that we have both of those components to have real product market fit. So um, what are some of the signs that you have, you've convinced yourself that you have fake product market fit? Lots of hiring, lots and lots of hiring. Typically, we see founders who think they have product market fit. Magically, their team goes from four to 12 before you know it. Number two, more business people than engineers. Um, you know, a big sign is, oh, it's time to scale a sales team. You know, the numbers aren't moving, so let's scale a sales team. Number three, no metrics dashboards. No one's looking at numbers. Everyone's doing things by feel and by guess. Uh, number four, too many nice things. This is harder in the time of COVID, but it was nice offices, nice trips, nice dinners, suddenly you start spending money on nice things. Number five is flat graphs. Uh, that's pretty simple. <laughs> um, you know, number six is missing your estimates, but coming up for reasons why that's okay. So, hey, we thought we'd do this in Q1. We thought we'd do this in July. We didn't hit it, but it's still okay. And then the last one, um, which is a really popular one, is changing your KPIs. We used to measure monthly revenue, but that number is flatlining. So now we measure monthly usage. Um, if you find yourself changing your KPIs, usually you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Why, why? did we get our, our KPI wrong in the beginning? Or does that mean that we're actually not progressing our business? Preventative measures. So once you've diagnosed the problem of fake product market fit, how do you fix it? One, pick an honest KPI and stick with it. Almost always, especially for you know, SaaS businesses, almost always that KPI is revenue. And revenue, of course, has two components, revenue from new users and revenue from retained users. The next preventative measure is track your retention carefully. If your product is very good, it's unacceptable that your users are churning. Number three is to do what we call cap your burn. If you are pre-product market fit, you should determine the amount of money you're willing to spend, burn every month and stick with it. And you should basically say, until we have product market fit, we're not gonna burn more than this amount of money per month. So if we wanna spend more than this amount of money per month, we have to spend our revenue as opposed to spending the money that we raised. Um, that's a great way to prevent yourself from going to fake product market fit or fake company building. The next one is somewhat subtle. Consider raising less money in your seed round. Also helps you because you get less dilution. If you have less money, it's a lot harder to do magical thinking and aggressive spending. You have to be a lot more careful about your metrics and your numbers and it can prevent magical, the fake market fit problem. 
Next is start with strong technical co-founders. The stronger your technical co-founders are in the beginning, the fewer engineers you'll have to hire. The next is have a three-month essential rule when hiring. So if the person you hire, three months from now, you just put that, put a calendar event on your calendar for three months from now. If you don't find them essential, by essential, I mean, if they told you they were quitting on that day, you wouldn't even want to open your email or go to work. You'd be so distraught. If your early employees don't give you that feeling, you probably should let them go. Um, the next is force revenue generating employees to pay for themselves. If you're bringing on an early salesperson, it's unacceptable that they're not paying for themselves. And then finally, to kind of break this idea that these impressive people you raise money from mean that your company is good, learn about all the bad investments that your investors, investors have made. Learn how many of their investments didn't end up working out so you understand that like maybe your fate would be similar. All right, next one. The next big issue I see is turning your investor into your boss and doing what they tell you to do. This is a very, very easy way to die. The causes, I feel like I'm a doctor. Um, <laughs> causes, first, fear and self-doubt. Every founder has fear and self-doubt. Um, it's just part of the game. If you can process that fear and self-doubt and continue to execute, you're in a good position. If you use that fear and self-doubt to seek out someone to tell you what to do, you are typically in a position of hurting your company. The next one is the false assumption that there are 100% repeatable paths to victory. My investors done it before. If I just follow what they do, I can do it too. This is honestly a very fair feeling because in most careers, it's true. If you have a mentor who's a great lawyer, you do what they tell you to do, probably you can get into a good law school and you can get into a good firm. Um, ditto for doctors, ditto for bankers. Unfortunately, in our game here, it's very, very hard to repeat success that someone else has done. The business environment just changes. Some of the rules are applicable, some are not. So rote repeating is very hard. And then last one is the lack of talking to customers. What I see happen a lot is when you stop talking to customers, you stop getting insights on what's wrong and what's right about your product. And then in the process of seeking out those insights, you might go to your investors who certainly won't be talking to your customers more than you should be. Okay, so those are the causes. The signs this are happening. You're feeling pressure to spend more money than you want to. You are hiring faster than you thought you should or that you created a plan for. Um, one big trick here is like you've decided to hire a recruiter pre-product market fit. That's a big sign here. You're burning more money every month, but your primary KPI is not increasing. You've locked in with one investor and closed off communication with others. And the belief that if you follow the plan the investor's given you, they will backstop you even if you don't hit your numbers. Those are the signs you've made the investor your boss. Preventative measures. Continue to talk to your customers. The more you interact with your customers, the more you onboard them, the more you talk to them, the more you'll have insights. The more you'll have the insights that allow you to figure out what needs to be built. So you won't have to look for external experts to tell you what to build. Number two, have a real KPI, have real metrics. You need to have numbers that can give you confidence in what you're doing so that you don't seek out experts. 
Number three, track retention. Number four, keep a low burn. You don't want to depend on your investors to give you more money pre-product market fit. So keep a low burn. The next one is do a startup in a space you have some organic insights in, that you have strong opinions in, so that you can trust those opinions. And then the last one, and the most important one is, know that you're the one who gives investors power over your business. If you're doing what your investors told you to do, you're literally giving them power over you. All they can do is use words. And so if you do not want your investors to have power over you, don't give it to them. They're not going to come beat you up. They're not going to, you know, kidnap your family. None of that. All right. Next topic. Number three biggest thing that causes C companies to die is co-founder conflict. There's this phrase that I think is really valuable called relationship debt. So it's this concept of how much kind of bullshit exists between you and your co-founders that you haven't cleared away. And the more and more relationship debt you get, just like technical debt, the harder and harder it is to execute. And then at some point, just like your product's gonna, is going to fall over if you have too much technical debt, your relationship with the co-founder falls over if you have too much relationship debt. What are causes? First, a weak previous relationship. If you barely knew your co-founder before starting your business, it's a lot easier for this to kill you. Number two, no clear roles and responsibilities. It's not clearly someone's job to do this and someone's job to do that. Uh, number three is a lack of trust. Not feeling like you trust your co-founder to go do the thing that they're supposed to do. And then number four is unrealistic expectations. Almost always this comes with fundraising. It almost always takes the tune of this company that sucks raised $10 million on TechCrunch. We just read it on TechCrunch today. They raised $10 million from this fund. Why can't we raise $10 million? And um, unfortunately, because the press covers fundraising so often, it's very easy to start getting unrealistic expectations about where you are versus how much you should be raising. Also, you never know the backstory about why that fundraise happened. So signs of co-founder conflict and too much relationship debt, lots of fighting or no conversation at all. Those are the two very typical signs. And preventative measures. One is what we call level three conversation. This is having a tough conversation with your co-founder about how you feel in a you know, safe space, not while something is breaking or while there's some other drama going on, but in a safe, like set aside time where you can actually talk about how you feel, talk about how expectations are or not being met, divide up responsibilities and roles, and basically pay down that relationship debt. Say the things nicely that are kind of bubbling inside and making sure that communication is happening. And then number two is an explicit roles and responsibilities conversation. I'm going to do product. I'm going to do fundraising. I'm going to handle customer service. I'm going to handle the mobile app. You're going to handle the database. Like explicit roles and responsibilities so people know that what they're supposed to do and so that you can trust people to execute in their area. All right. Number four, uh, the fourth biggest thing that's killing folks out there. This is an interesting one. <laughs> um, this is one that we call, are you being ordinary or are you being extraordinary? Are you copying the people around you but expecting a massive success? 
It turns out that in your normal life, if you are a smart person and you put yourself in a group of smart people, smart, motivated people, and you are middle of the pack, in normal life, you're probably in the 95th percentile. You'll probably do fine. You'll probably be good, a good lawyer, a good doctor, a good banker, uh, a good employee at a tech company, probably do fine. The problem is that the failure rate at startups is so high that being average amongst smart people isn't enough. You've got to be extraordinary. You have to be many standard deviations better than the other people who are doing startups around you. So how do you reach for it? First, right, you understand that the people around you are the floor and not the ceiling, right? So, you know, as a cause, you need to understand that that's the case. And then, you know, the second cause of people doing this is not believing they can be better than the people around them, not having the confidence that they can be better than the people around them. The signs that you're reaching for ordinary versus extraordinary. And you'll start noticing a lot of these signs and preventive measures are somewhat similar. One, no numerical goals. Measuring success by some other way, you know, being invited to conferences, press, that kind of stuff, but not numerical goals. Number two, ignoring obvious signs of lack of progress. You're not growing month over month. Your churn's too high. Number three, a good sign. You're just happy to be alive. You're happy to be a company that's got some money in the bank. Number four, you've stopped learning. You're no longer learning new insights about what your customers need or about how your product should work. And then number five is blaming outside factors or a lack of luck for a lack of success. Oh, our timing was wrong. Oh, they got lucky. They raised from this investor and we didn't. Blaming outside factors for your lack of success versus internalizing that you have to create success by being extraordinary. How do you prevent this? First, I think you just have to embrace the idea that you can get better over time that like you will get better over time if you try. That if you try to be extraordinary, you can become extraordinary. This isn't something that is um, decided by birth. Number two, I would encourage you to think about habit formation, to read the book Atomic Habits, and to start thinking about how you can become more productive every day. Extraordinary people get more things done. Number three is what I call a Jedi Council have a set of people that you get advice from who are more extraordinary than you. Um, and then number four, set measurable goals. Challenge yourself to accomplish a goal in your business that you don't know how you're going to achieve. If you think you can hit this number, try to hit a number 15% higher. You're not going to become extraordinary by not trying. All right. The last one is slow product development. Basically, the ability to get features, iterations, bug fixes out the door starts slowing and slowing and slowing. And so you're taking fewer shots on goal. Um, this is the final way that I see startups post seed rounds die constantly. What are the causes of slow product development? First, you have no process for deciding what to build. No process. Second, you don't run sprints. You don't have deadlines. Number three, you don't write specs. You just have conversations and then build what you talked about. You don't write anything down. Next, your engineers are not involved in product decisions. 
the people who are doing the work are not involved in the discussion of what should be built. The next one is no metrics. You can't tell whether a product's working or not because you're not measuring anything. Um, the next one is you stopped interacting with customers. You got too busy. I'm too busy doing these other things. I can't talk to my customers anymore. The next one's bad co-founder relationship. If the team is not motivated, product development slows down. The next one is low quality product founders. I call these people fake Steve Jobs. They're the people who believe they know what the customer wants without ever talking to them. Or low quality technical founders. Your technical founders are not strong enough to produce product at high enough quality quickly. Very typically this happens with outsourced engineering teams. The signs that you're in a slow product development hole. One, deadlines are always missed or there are no deadlines. Number two, your release schedule is quarterly or longer. You can't get anything out in less than three months. Number three is a discouraged or disengaged engineering team. An engineering team that doesn't care whether you're winning or losing. And number four is half done features piling up. This is commonly the cause of a bad product founder. They'll have the team running down one road to build this thing. Then some customer will say something or they'll have some new idea. They'll cut that project short, not release it, and then run down a different road. Very bad. Here are the preventative measures. The first is have a product development cycle. Um, if you Google search Michael Seibel product development cycle, you'll see an example of one that I've used. You can have anyone you want. Just have a cycle and a process for deciding what you build that's repeatable. Understand that like one optimization you need to do is having a process where you take as many shots on goal as possible, as opposed to having a process where you try to imagineer what's the perfect shot. Next, always be collecting qualitative and quantitative feedback. Um, you should always be in whatever your analytics product is, and you should always be doing user interviews. The next, write specs. A product meeting is not done until there's a written spec um, that everyone can look at. Next one, simple, use product management software. By the way, none of these things are that crazy. It's just that people always make excuses for not doing the basic things. The next one is that, especially when your team is small, you know, under eight people, under six people, have the product brainstorm with everyone, even if everyone's not contributing equally have everyone in the room when you're deciding what to make. The next one is give all team members access to the customer and access to the customer data. It shouldn't be just the product person that's doing user interviews. It shouldn't be just the product person who's in mix panel or amplitude looking at the stats. The next one is understand that motivation is a multiplier effect on talent. More often I see the product lead or the CEO not managing the motivation of their team. And the result is that they think they know what needs to be built. They think they have the right people, but because they're not managing those people's motivation, all progress slows. And then finally, understanding that whoever's leading product is responsible for making sure that product is released, not deciding what to build. Everyone can contribute to the conversation about what to build. Your responsibility is to make sure that when we say we're gonna build something, we build it. When we say we're gonna build it, we have a deadline that we hit. Your responsibility is making sure the product development process is working. You're going to have some ideas that'll get built, but other people should have ideas that should be built too. Linode's Linux Virtual Machines offer industry-leading price performance. 
Don't believe us? Use our total cost of ownership calculator to receive a total cost breakdown, technical recommendations, and see how much you can save compared to the hyperscalers. Visit Linode.com saster to learn more.